Imagine scrolling through the timeline on your favorite social media platforms. News, ads, faces, memes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. wait a minute. What's this? Mm, looks like a pretty hateful comment to me. What are they? Oh, yeah, that's very explicit. Um, what now? Maybe stand up and voice your disagreement. You could comment yourself. Oh, but I just feed into the hate. I could also just report the post using the platform's mechanism. But what about that person that got attacked? Maybe drop them a private message, see if they're okay? Oh, I don't know them personally. You know what? Someone else is more qualified to deal with this than me. I'll just continue swiping. Recognize this? This was a little example of what bystanding decision-making could look like online. Yet what conditions could support bystanders to act in a pro-social way? While research within political science has focused on aggressors and explored how hostile behavior develops, much less attention has been given to bystander reactions. Today, we are joined by Lasse Lindekille and Simon Kark from the Standby Project to unpack how their research group attempts to study online upstanding behavior and hopefully influence the development of structures that encourage pro-social behavior online. My name is Arno. And my name is Savannah. Welcome to the Interacting Minds podcast. Welcome to the IMC podcast. Today we're joined by two members of the Standby project, Lasse Lindekille and Simon Tobias Kark. And unfortunately not today with us is Tanja Marie Hensen, who's also part of the project. Um, to get us started, could you guys introduce yourself and kind of where you come from? Sure, uh, I can start. So as you said, my name is Lasse. Uh, I'm a professor at the Department of Political Science at Aarhus University, and I have a background in political sociology. So I've spent the last decade or so studying the dark sides of politics. So my interest has been mainly in uh, political violence, extremism, radicalization, and sort of the later years I've gone into studying those phenomena online and have developed an interest in yeah, uh, hate speech and when political discussion on the internet turn ugly. Really interesting. And you're also the PI of the project, so we're going to kind correct. of get you to take us back to when the project started. And Simon, can you say a bit about yourself? I'm Simon. I'm a postdoc at the project. Um, my background is sort of in moral psychology. Uh, so I spent some time studying how people sort of act, moral or immoral, and especially dishonest. Um and uh, yeah, and then I came to the project kind of with the hope that uh, maybe, well, in the past I've sort of looked at, yeah, the dark side of uh, humans, uh, human behavior and immoral behavior. And now I'm excited to work on something that's a bit more maybe pro-social, kind of the hope to engage people into sort of countering online hate. So that's kind of my main <laughs> main motivation in this project to to study these factors. So quick check on conflicts of interest. Uh, Simon is actually a good friend and also the producer of the music you just heard. So he's also part of the producing team of the IMC podcast. That's true. That's a very shameless plug. But uh, yeah. 
but maybe taking us back to what you just said as well. Um, so you're really interested in focusing on something quite positive. So you're not actually looking at hate speech, but the project started by looking at another behavior that we see in online kind of forums, and that is a bystanding behavior. That's correct. So uh, as I said, I have been uh, studying also um, hate speech and, and sort of political aggression online for a while. I've been part of a big project called the Rough Project, also based at Political Science in Aarhus. And we continuously encountered these situations where um, we're able to tell that although not many people sort of intervened in discussions that turned hateful to protect victims, a sort of say no to the hate, uh, we could see that the witnesses are there. So there is a lot of present bystanders to these sort of situations. Uh, and the basic idea of the project was to take that role of the cyber bystander uh, seriously and study more um, exactly how these people react and under what circumstances they're more likely to take on more moral, pro-social uh, behavior in response to witnessing uh, hateful speech uh, on social media. That sort of became the, my main interest and in, uh, developed the project around that basic figure and trying to figure out exactly what are the reasons for people either uh, remaining passive, which is the most obvious choice of behavior in this situation, or which we also see sometimes people actually engaging uh, in the discussion and taking on these pro-social behavior, either by reporting hate speech or interacting to sort of uh, protect the victim or uh, counter-speak uh, the hate. So we're trying to look at the at the project overall, is trying to look at the reasons for this behavior, who am I likely to take on this behavior, but also what are the consequences of the behavior? Does it have positive consequences in terms of the subsequent quality of discussion, but also more long-term, can we sort of change potentially um, the norms of interaction on social media platforms by boosting, hopefully, this sort of behavior? So the project has also an interest in learning more about potential ways of mobilizing bystanders to actually engage this behavior. In a way, you're more interested in upstanding than bystanding. Exactly. So we're interested in the circumstances under which people actually move from being passive bystanders to being active upstanders. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we kind of know this, I think, most people who have not engaged on this topic will have come across bystanding in physical context. So we have someone is getting attacked and now I have a chance to interact or intervene in some way. How is physical bystanding different to cyber bystanding? Uh, that's a good question. So obviously when designing the project and theorizing this kind of cyber bystanding, obviously the, the most obvious starting point was this huge uh, classic literature on on the bystander in social psychology. So, so that has been a stepping stone in, in the project. And we know that, you know, for people to actually take on uh, pro-social behavior and intervene in these situations, they know they need to determine somehow that there is an emergency going on. They need to notice what is going on and they need to take on a responsibility for actually acting and then acting. And 
all these factors sort of change in an online context, right? It might be much more difficult to determine when something is actually a crisis situation. When is yeah. something actually hateful? When is it perceived as hateful by the target? It's much more difficult to determine. So there's much more ambiguity, which changes uh, the situation. But obviously also the potential number of bystanders is huge uh, on social media, right? Compared to a physical emergency of what which you described so so that changes uh, the role of the bystanding a lot uh, also the fact that on social media you don't necessarily engage with hateful content live right you can come across content that's old uh, and the question is are you still a bystander in that situation mm -hmm. um, we're addressing that question and your team started also by kind of unpacking what victimhood and attacker i think means in that space why did you specifically focus on political hate speech or not just hate speech in general online i think it has to do with the fact that i'm a political scientist scientist <laughs> and have an interest in in general in political discourse and political debates and the importance of political deliberation for our democracy so um, one reason why We chose to focus especially on political, uh, well, hate speech in the context of politics is the, the well-known negative consequences of that for democracy. The fact that people tend to disengage for political debates if they encounter a lot of hate. So uh, I think that's an important democratic problem that we need to address. I think the temporal dimension that you refer to that really changes in online and offline platforms yeah poses really important ethical questions <laughs> and for example is there like a critical window to reacting to hate speech is is it okay for me to say oh it's from yesterday yeah it won't change anything i think it's a really good question and i think it's something that we will try to dive into uh -huh. in the context of the of the project because Exactly. The fact that something, you know, you can tell by the post that it's old, does that mean that it's not no longer an emergency? Although the negative impact on the victim by the fact that it's still present, it's still available online might be severe. Uh, it's really interesting and something we don't know much about. Another question in line with that is the question of whether if somebody already reacted Yeah. Do I still sort of have a responsibility to react when I scroll by it? Or does that mean that I no longer view the situation as a crisis or an emergency because somebody did something, then it's all good or what? We we're trying to look into that as well. But maybe bringing us to the methodology and bringing you into this conversation, Simon. Um, so how are you approaching this space? I mean... Yeah, it's it's a difficult subject to study, right? Like there's uh, so many ways to approach it and um, we are ambitious in the sense that we're trying to do many things. We're doing sort of the classic uh, survey uh, uh, studies that you often do in political science. So we ask people uh, like you and me, like representative samples uh, in a bunch of countries. So Denmark, of course, but also the US and Germany and the UK is planned about their experience with hate online and how they react typically. Of course, that can only tell you so much, right? Because um, people might not remember correctly or, or they behave in one way, but then they actually do 
uh, behave very differently. Bolster that kind of data stream with other things like we're doing um, experiments. Um, so we're very excited about mock social media platform. Um, and so with this platform, you can uh, simulate uh, Twitter or Facebook timelines uh, so that participants just can uh, yeah, scroll these timelines like they would do with their social media feed and then we control whatever is on that timeline, right? And then we can know, okay, they've, uh, they can put in some, some hateful posts in there and then uh, can see whether they react or, and how they, how they react, right? Um, and then we can obviously manipulate all these factors, right? Like we just said, right? Like one thing that's interesting to, to, to think about is just, okay, the time uh, of when this was posted, was this posted a few seconds ago or a couple of days ago? And does that matter for how people react? Um, or how many reactions uh, 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 something got, right? Did it get uh, lots of comments or no comments at all and likes or, or all these things, right? So yeah, we're really excited about that. And then we're also doing, um, trying to uh, get pretty close to the data. So we're doing some interviews uh, with people who actually stood up and uh, said something against the hateful uh, uh, things being said online and that's actually proving to be quite tricky to recruit more so so we have a colleague of ours uh, Jesper he's uh, done some interviews with people who are hateful and he sort of tried to recruit those so he went on Facebook and just uh, uh, wrote them and said hey it seems that you have some strong opinions um, I'm a researcher uh, maybe uh, you just want to talk a little bit about about these opinions I would love to hear more about them um, <laughs> We'd love to hear more about how you harassed <laughs> that person. Yeah, right. It's it's, it's challenging, but um, but at least there it seems that uh, people, you know, they they have something to 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 get off their chest. Uh -huh. So yeah, they're trying to. They they are also some of them at least are also willing to talk to researchers. Uh, and I think we've had a bit more trouble recruiting sort of people who stand up. Oh, we're getting there. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So you said earlier we kind of did a little pre-interview um, that so Tanya and Lassa during those interviews. Um, what is the sense you're getting so far from those interviews? So we talk about the motivations basically for engaging. So we identify people on social media platforms that have actually engaged in pro-social behavior. And uh, we then send them a private message asking if they want to talk to us. And um, part of the interview is then confronting them with sort of the statement they made and the context in which it, it, it appeared and, and asking them about why did you do this? Why did you feel a need to say this? And uh, there's a bunch of different uh, motivations that drive this. Some are really tricked, triggered by deep felt sort of fairness principles. So it's just not okay uh, that people get discriminated because of their race or ethnicity or religion or whatever, and they just need to say it. And interestingly enough, uh, coming back to what we discussed of the offline, online sort of divide in this, many of them refer to offline situations where they do the same thing. Okay. It's not just a social media thing, but they're just, I guess, personality-wise wired in the sense that they need to stand up in these uh, unjust situations and show their disapproval of it. And they, they describe these situations mm. where they do it on the street and uh, they approach gang members and say, you know, behave properly and stuff like that. And they, they do the same thing online when people are not 
behaving well. Um, so that's interesting. And then there's some some stuff we didn't think much about when engaging uh, into this project in the beginning, which is, you know, who are these people? So so one thing is personality-wise, how are they wired? But But another thing that keeps appearing in the interviews is that a lot of these people are people with a lot of time on their hands. Okay. They just seem to be resourceful in terms of time. So just like probably engaging in hateful discussion on subforums, on Reddit is something that takes time to actually do, this sort of upstanding behavior is also something, you know, you, you need time to do it. Um, and it, it, it seems like these people are really politically engaged people that are on social media to discuss politics a lot, uh, and they spend a lot of time there. Could, could there be a recruitment bias here that you it's much easier to recruit for interviews people that have time we thought about that yeah and yes uh, I, I think you're absolutely right um, but even uh, within the, the the sample that we've gotten so far I mean there are people that that are you know very well educated and have good mm -hmm. jobs and and are busy people but they they seem to dedicate a lot of time on social media and discussing politics. So I think there is a, you could say, an activistic side to this, to some of these informants, at least, of the people we interviewed, that they they sort of feel a need to to be activistic in, in what they see and how they respond to, to hate on social media. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's also, I mean, as I said, we also have done some, some survey, uh, collect some survey data. Um, and so we have a representative sample, quite a large sample actually, of Danish social media users um, and their experience and sort of with hate and uh, um, their reactions to it. Um, and there we do see um, sort of, yes, these effects of um, uh, that basically those people who are very interested in politics are kind of those that um, also engage in these sort of more hostile discussions and sort of answer more and uh, share more and report more. Um, and actually one thing that's sort of is very interesting um, that comes out very clearly. So if we look at reporting, right? So reporting behavior is one of these classic, uh, uh, yeah, things you, you can do, right? When you come across a, a hateful post, almost all, or I think all platforms I know of uh, have a report functionality. Uh, right, so there's usually a small button somewhere on the post that you can click, and then you can say, uh, "I want to report this comment," and then there comes a more or less tedious uh, drop-down menu of why you think this post was uh, should be reported. Um, but uh, yeah, once you navigate this, it gets somehow passed to the platform and then maybe removed. Um, <laughs> we can maybe talk about whether that that's effective or not, but. Um, what comes out very clearly in the service survey is that um, it's mostly young people that do this. So it's a huge age effect. It's the biggest effect we see. Um, so we've asked people, uh, you know, about gender and political interest and all these kinds of things. But the biggest effect on reporting is definitely age. Um, so I guess um, one thing that is also contributing here is maybe I'm, I'm I don't know. This is of course speculation, but one one thing that I think is interesting is just how much people know about the possibilities of reporting, for instance. My sense is that because this functionality is a bit hidden, maybe yeah. people who are a bit older, yeah, just don't know about it or just yeah, don't think to use it. 
two questions to that. So one, I th you gave a really interesting talk at the IMC about this. So who is on the social media platforms in Denmark? I guess in Denmark, the most common, I would think, are Facebook and mm. Twitter. Yeah, well, Facebook, definitely, yes. So Facebook takes the, the price. It depends a bit on how you look at it, right? Like, um, as I said, we only have survey data, so we only have self-reported use, um, which only goes so far. But from 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 what we see there, at least, um, we know that, uh, yeah, Facebook is most prominent and then follows YouTube. Around 75% of Danes use Facebook and then it's around 61% for YouTube and then follows Instagram, uh, Snapchat, TikTok, um, and Twitter is only at 11%. Um, and this is <laughs> maybe an aside here, but it's interesting. Um, people who do research in social media kind of know this already, but there's a there's an interesting challenge with data access. So when I when I talked about our methodology, uh, one thing I missed uh, or didn't get to was uh, that we also, of course, trying to use actual social media data uh, to to do our research. Um, and there is always the problem of data access, right? Like, how do you get, um, yeah, access to all these uh, hateful posts and potential counter speech posts, and how can you study those? Um, and it's just the unfortunate fact that um, right now, at least, only Twitter has um, decent access for researchers to to get the data so that we can analyze it. Um, and for instance, Facebook has been very, yeah, how can you say this? It has, yeah, it was very challenging to get Facebook data to begin with. Um, and now they've completely blocked sort of, they had this uh, CrowdTangle API it's called, and they sort of just announced that they will discontinue that one. Um, so now it's actually really open question of how, how do we get uh, data from there? Basically what this means is that uh, even though only 11% of uh, Danes use Twitter, we will, for our Danish uh, 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 sort of social media data, need we need to heavily rely on that sample. And of course, we know that the Twitter population is not representative of the Danish population. So the Twitter population is younger, it's more male, um, and it's more politically oriented, like a lot more politically oriented than uh, the, the, the average Dane. But we might also add that we also know from the from the survey data you refer to um, that uh, people experience the most hate on Facebook and Twitter. So f Twitter follows closely after Facebook in in that contest. So in the sense that we are eager to study these sort of hateful interactions and how p people respond. I mean, it's it's not the worst choice because no. <laughs> it's definitely going to find what we look for. Yeah, it's it's good for you. In that sense, yes. I just wanted to jump in. Like One interesting thing is you, you mentioned Twitter in the top and that might reflect more about the kind of person you are and the sort of contacts you have. You use Twitter, you know a lot of people that use Twitter. And I guess that might shape the sort of hate speech you'll find on a platform, its demographics. So are certain types of hate speech more common in certain platforms? That is a good question, but I guess the affordances of the platforms will to some degree obviously shape mm. uh, the, the, the hate and the forms that aggression take on the platform. So 
I mean, studies show that obviously you find certain types of Facebook groups, right, where mm. hate is very prominent. But we also, to counter that, find sort of activist groups on Facebook that mobilize around counter speech and actually effectively sometimes it seems uh, use the platform affordances to mobilize in groups and then lock on to specific groups or discussions to counter it by numbers. Um, so, so yes, I think both in terms of the hate that you experience and obviously just the way you react is are shaped by by platform affordances it's clear that for instance with instagram right there's a lot of picture content uh, photos right there the things that people uh, talk about is is different than twitter um and the the ways in which people talk about for instance political things are, are different right so yeah instagram being mostly photo based there's a lot of meme content twitter is obviously obviously sort of yeah everyone trying to get the hot take the one-liner that kind of uh, mm. makes everyone engage but i feel like we see hate on every platform it can take different forms uh for sure but again this is a problem really of, of data access i think there is no definitive study kind of showing that. I think it's it's something that we can expect, uh, knowing about sort of the user groups and knowing why people use certain platforms. Um, sort of one one thing maybe is that in our survey, uh, LinkedIn uh, is sort of the least hateful uh, site. But then again, LinkedIn users are older, also mostly male. So take that with a grain of salt. But of course, with LinkedIn kind of being this platform where sort of you know, everyone's trying to to polish their CV and sort of be their their best self. I guess it, it makes sense why you why you would see it uh, that there's less hate there. Can you report someone on LinkedIn? That's a good question. I think you can. Probably. I think so. Yeah, Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was just in Danish media. There was actually just a big report on on sexual harassment on LinkedIn. Okay. I'm just looking at it now. You definitely can. It says report <laughs> this post. All right. But obviously, I mean, LinkedIn being sort of a window dressing for yeah. your next job, it makes sense that it's yeah. not the most hateful platform. Well, maybe just to, to supplement what you're saying, Simon, that our data also shows that that although um, uh, different affordances probably lead to different types of hate on these platforms, what we see is that across all platforms, more or less, uh, the context in which people experience the most hate is political discussions. It's mm -hmm. about their political orientation and opinions, and that cuts across platforms. So I think that's yeah. important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And is, I guess, an argument also to why studying this in the context of politics makes sense. Do you find that, uh, so in Twitter, for example, there's a yeah. younger generation around. Is this also the generation that feels experiences more hate, or is this distributed more equally across age groups? So this depends a bit on how you ask the question. So interestingly enough, when we ask people um, how much hate sort of do you experience, like hate targeted at yourself, then it's pretty similar across the board. And then it's really, it doesn't matter how you slice the cake. So it doesn't matter whether you look at difference between men and women or uh, left, right, center ideology or age groups, um, there's actually astoundingly uh, uh, yeah, similar levels, right? Because one might think differently. 
And then when you ask people, okay, how many, how much hate do you see that's targeted at others, like people you don't know, there it's still very similar for sort of men, women, and uh, left, center, right. But it is, it is the case that young people um, see more hate uh, targeted at others. Now it's an open question of why that is, right? So there, there could be different explanations, right? So one could be that. Well, young people just use social media differently or use it uh, more or use it, right? Like even though they, they might all be on Facebook, let's say they might use different groups on Facebook, right? So mm -hmm. they might be, they might occupy group like spaces on those social media uh, spaces where, uh, yeah, there is just more hate or they might be more sensitive to hate, right? So it, it might be that they're think that certain things are hateful that older people don't we don't know we we cannot say um, yet yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> to to get back to the affordances of the platforms we're talking about the functionalities of that platform groups likes uh, reports but we haven't really discussed the way we actually get to see post so mm. the algorithm that sorts the content that you will see for you I guess it's hard to sort of have any definitive things to say about that. Mm -hmm. That might also drive hate speech. Yeah. I guess that if you react more to hate speech, you're more likely to also see more hate speech. Or... Yeah. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's actually very interesting that you say this because um, so as Lasse previously mentioned, there are sort of organized groups around counter speech. And uh, one of the biggest ones, I think originally Swedish yeah. uh, group, but now exists in, in many, many countries and languages. Uh, in English, I am here. So it's under the hashtag I am here or on Facebook, there are groups called I am here. What they do is they right, so they are counter speech group, right? So they want to uh, reduce hate on, 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 on social media and especially Facebook. So when they identify a... Uh, a thread or a post uh, of let's say some kind of news outlet um, posts a video about I don't know some topic about migration uh, and then there's a lot of hate under that and then they come in and then they don't actually engage with the hate as much as such but they just write their own uh, comments sort of that are more constructive and more positive in tone um, and then they try to uh, sort of like these posts and sort of lift these posts up so that the hate gets buried. Because as you said, it is true that, and we know that now from kind of the, the Facebook files, any kind of engagement and particularly engagements beyond the, the like button, right? So on Facebook, you can sort of be angry or sad or uh, oh, there's a new care emoji that you can sort of have or you write a comment, right? Any Anything, any action like that will sort of promote this kind of, of, of comment, right? And then exactly as, 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 as you said, right, these comments are shown, are sorted and are shown sort of at the top. Yeah. So that means that if a lot of people engage with, with hate, even if they engage in a pro-social way and say, this is uh, not okay what you said here and uh, yeah, try to elicit some empathy, like these acts are, are good, but they also work in order to promote the hate, right? So unless the hate gets removed, uh, people will still sort of see it and will s this will be the first thing they, they read. So that group, uh, am I here? I am here. I am here. Uh, that group uses the algorithmic tools that are promoting exactly. hate speech rather than 
Yes, yeah, sort of building on Facebook's own algorithmic yeah. setup to to counter the hate. Uh, so it's very cleverly done, and they have a sort of specified manual for how you should engage and how you should do this and what you shouldn't do. For example, you shouldn't engage in in direct sort of counter speech with the hater or spew hate the other way, of course. But mm. but use the approach Simon described uh, as it. Well, exactly. Uh, sort of uh, piggyback on the algorithm to to bury the hate. What what would be their point of view on the tools that Facebook give to report hate? So the report button. Right. So I think a lot of activists uh, in this field on social media, uh, including I think uh, a lot of users, uh, yeah. have an experience that the reporting functions are if not ineffective, then a slow and tedious process that might lead to, to deletion, but might not. And especially the fact that if you engage in reporting, you are not necessarily, well, it depends a bit on the platform, but you're not necessarily um, secured sort of a, a feedback in the end of what happened. Did yeah. anything happen? Was it taken down? And if not, for what reasons? Was it not removed? You don't get that. And I think that's often leads people to try it out and then maybe stop doing it. Uh -huh. So behind this sort of groups of uh, I am here and other groups, I think lies a realization that we need to do other stuff. Uh, reporting to platform moderators is not going to cut it. And I, and I think idea of the standby project is to say, well, we can't rely on platforms to take down hate and moderate hate. It, it's a tsunami of hate on social media sometimes, yeah. and it's not going to be enough. So what we should focus on and what these activist groups are focusing on is sort of mobilizing all of us, uh, all the participants, all the users of platforms uh, to help solve the problem. So we talk in the project about democratizing the solution to hate on social media by exactly engaging more people in this sort of uh, counter speech and, and upstanding behavior. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll find out how exactly to do that. Uh, also, you know, learning from these groups that are already doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in general it's a very interesting space um, because there are so many groups and sort of actors, um, particularly in Germany. It seems that yeah, for uh, some reason, we, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some, some very active sort of NGO work. And it's also funded by some some government uh, funds. So yeah, it's super interesting and sort of finding out how how they try to 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 deal with, with these problems or how they try to um, yeah, activate uh, people to, to counter hate. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they all, so the, the only issue is of course that they, yeah, they all have sort of their own different strategies and it's not clear kind of, okay, sort of how long do these uh, projects run and what is ac actually their impact? So, it's it's very clear that a lot of people kind of start um, and then as Vasily said, like, okay, maybe they don't see any uh, sort of results in it and then they struggle sort of keeping up with it and then just uh, don't do anything anymore. And yeah, I think that's in general one thing that needs to be 
we need to uh, keep close track of kind of when we think about how does sort of bystanding or upstanding in, in, in this online sphere, like what are the consequences here? Like what are the consequences to sort of the victims of, of the hate, of course, but also what are, and what are consequences to the perpetrators of hate, right? So do they change their mind change their mind uh, or post less hate but also importantly what happens to sort of the the bystanders who intervene right and because if we if we say we want to sort of get people to to engage in this behavior more then we need to pay close attention that this behavior is actually helpful yeah helpful for the person but also for yourself exactly well, i mean we have some survey data we collected so far which sort of indicate that there is a correlation between mm counter-speak and this sort of upstanding pro-social behavior and reactions to, to hate and the likelihood of answering that you would withdraw from political discussion as a result of encountering hate. So it might be, it seems, that if you do this sort of interventions, you are less likely to... Um, experience yourself the negative consequences of experiencing hate by withdrawing from discussions which is mm -hmm. obviously an important fact for, for our democracy so that's something we're going to explore more as a, a traditional academic i'm going to um, ask a question where i don't know if it's a question yet so <laughs> It's something I find really interesting is the anonymity of social media or just general online experience. So, for example, we're talking so far about upsetting in a visible space. So if I tweet on Twitter and I retweet something and say this is not okay, other people can engage and engage with me. But what I can also do is actually write a private message. And I have done that in the past where I feel I'm not going to engage, like having a certain amount of digital literacy you know you're going to track them up your way as well. So um, how much are you going to become your own victim? I guess the same if you're in a non-safe space, in a, like mm -hmm. in a physical bystanding situation. How much are you looking into kind of the, the hidden spaces or how people upstand behind the scenes? The trick in doing that is obviously getting data. So it's very difficult to yeah. collect sort of systematic data on, on private messages and stuff that are not visible on social media platforms yeah, because we, complex, can't, yeah. we can't harvest it. But uh, part of the, the, the start sort of first uh, conceptual work in the project, we've, we've tried to map out sort of the space of possible reactions to hate. So the different pro-social reactions. And, and obviously what you are hinting at is, is the non-visible reactions. And there are quite a few, right? So you can, you can engage in private messaging and do that. Uh, and then there's the whole spectrum of possible reactions which are actually visible and that we have a, a better chance of being able to study, uh, including um, all the sort of technical responses in terms of, 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 of dislikes and, and, and yeah, uh, whatnot, but then also engaging in commenting. So actually posting uh, a response to a hateful statement, um, which then again, you can further sort of subdivide into those that target the victim and those that target the perpetrator. As Simon was saying, you could, 
you could think of, of reactions where you, you try to sway the perspective of the perpetrator by providing facts or, you know, explaining to them why this is hurtful or be empathetic in a way, but, but targeting the, the, the perpetrator. But you could also sort of try to shield the victim by, by saying, you know, I'm here. Uh, that's not cool. Don't listen. He's a jerk. Uh, so, so there are, there is this, wide spectrum of possible reactions uh, that we try to conceptualize and um, hopefully we'll be able to study. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's developing, uh, uh, right? It's never a stable situation. So platforms obviously also change what's possible, uh, right? So Twitter just recently introduced this downvote button, which is a yeah, something you can do now in a conversation. You can just downvote a comment. It's not clear what it really does. Um, probably it, Twitter uses it to learn um, kind of in a softer way than reporting uh, what kind of uh, comments maybe are more problematic and then potentially hiding those, right? Um, so, so, so that is something that just got added. Um, it's an interesting uh, idea because, yeah, people kind of, play with it so of course we want to also want to want to play with that kind of uh, things on our mock social media platform right um so there's this idea that maybe if you change the like button to a respect button just changes things uh, can make discussions more civil this has been a has been a proposal or just how hidden is the report functionality as i said it's it's usually hidden in like three drop down menus and then you it's like you need to navigate quite a few things um, right, so ease of use, and so yeah, all these things impact probably how people behave. So yeah, um, just to add to the conceptual uh, discussion. So so one thing that we keep encountering in mm. our discussion of this phenomenon of, of pro-social reactions is the need to distinguish between those uh, positive. Uh, more productive behaviors and of course counter speech that is in itself hateful uh, because that happens uh, all the time that people will react to hate with more hate mm -hmm. so spewing hate the other way so we need to be able to conceptually distinguish between the productive uh, responses and the not productive responses obviously i mean the the, the, the trick is to try to disentangle um expressing disagreement in a hateful way from disagreement in and by itself because disagreement is you know by definition part of politics and part of our democ de democratic deliberation uh, but we need to to distinguish the hateful ways of expressing that and the pro-social and non-pro-social are um, antisocial reactions to the hate. So, so that's what we are struggling with. Mm. And, and, and uh, conceptually, it works. But when you apply sort of our conceptual map to actual Twitter data, for example, <laughs> it becomes really difficult because one of the aspects of, of studying this in an online context is that social media discussions are very complex and you need a lot of context often to understand what the heck is going on. And as I said in the beginning, to actually determine whether or not something is hateful or in that sense, an emergency that requires uh, upstanding behavior. So we're struggling with that, but making progress. Mm -hmm.
I actually tested that out yesterday. I, um, Simon gave me some help in reporting <laughs> a Twitter tweet, okay. which was very nuanced. Um, I would say it was um, aggressive towards a social group, a minority group, but there was no swear words or no easy identifiable hatred, I would say, for myself. Like, I could clearly read following the thread that this was a hateful behavior. Right. But I couldn't, without going into political discussion or something, couldn't say that I would report this because, um, which I found very interesting. And then the options Twitter gave me were very limited. Yeah. So, um, and then I also wanted, like, so it's asking who is attacked by this. Is this an individual? Is it you getting attacked? You said this earlier. Like, is it towards the yeah. individual? But the individual is quite broad on Twitter. It could be sure. my entire social group yeah. that gets attacked. Do I consider myself part of that? Then that might be about me as well. So I think it was quite interesting seeing the nuanced complexity of saying this is hate or not hate. Well, I'm glad we have five years to the project <laughs> because, because there is a lot of difficulties in, in actually studying this. Um, I think we have some good ideas of how to do it. And yeah. I think, as Simon said... Um, um, there are some methodological tricks uh, that that we are that we're doing to try to to make this possible, but it's not an easy endeavor. Anno, would you like to ask any kind of final questions? Yeah, I'd like to get back on this idea of uh, contextual knowledge in order to understand some hate speech. There are situations uh, where, for example, memes get used at in a sort of way that's quite covered. So let's say, for example, there is a feminist message on Twitter and then someone comes and puts a Pepe the Frog. It's not necessarily, I mean, now it's pretty obvious what it means, but at some time it was not clear exactly what's the message behind. But then it also draws attention from a certain community to that message, right? Yeah, so it's like dog whistling, right? So mm. certain people will be able to um, decipher what the Pepper the Frog meme means and come in and, and actually hear the whistle and react to it, whereas exactly. others won't. And we see that all the time. Um, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and especially probably the meme uh, use <laughs> uh, entails all these sort of complexities and uh, ambiguities of meaning, right? And that has to do with the fact that they're often using humor and, mm -hmm. and humor is just a very often well used tool to hide hate yeah. uh, by, by right wing hate groups, for example. They do it all the time. Um, we actually did a small study uh, within the framework of the project of looking at how young people react to memes that uh, include hate um, and, and uses humor. And uh, what we see is that they can be very, very difficult to decipher in terms of meaning. And, and people yeah. often need a certain political knowledge to actually make sense of the meme and to determine whether or not it's actually hateful or just humoristic or both, or in that sense, in need of reactions or not. What happens when I can't understand that I'm being harassed? I guess nothing. <laughs> well, you might experience that people intervene on your behalf, right? Mm -hmm. And then in that sense, become aware that you've actually been the target of hate speech. Um, but it might be in that sort of second order way that you actually acknowledge it because you just don't hear the dog whistle or you just don't yeah. get it. Um, mm -hmm. 
um, which I think is the fact sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's challenging, right? Because there are so many gray areas. And I think that's also why people push back. And I, and I think it's very understandable that people push back on this idea of, of censorship. The one solution that, that is sort of often peddled is that we need to just remove all the hate. It's It's very... It's very difficult, right, to do that because it's very difficult to determine what actually is hateful and what is not. And the form changes and sure. adapts. Exactly. Sure. Um, and um, while you can probably train an algorithm to sort of detect uh, hate speech to, to a certain degree, it will, first of all, never be perfect. And second of all, um, hateful people will learn to, to understand that algorithm and will learn to adapt and uh, and uh, post uh, content that is still hateful, but uses different words or uses different formats, like memes are very hard to detect usually. So so there's a sort of, uh, what's called a cats and mouse kind of uh, problem there. Hmm. Um, so our hope, right, with, with this sort of recruiting the, the, the bystanders is really that you don't need to ban as much, right? I mean, that's of course a, a big dream, um, because you will still need to 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 ban and report sort of the, the the very bad things, but sort of the the middle ground, the the gray ground, maybe that could be solved by a sort of more democratic debate about like how can we discuss our disagreements, right? Um, yeah, it's not our goal, right, to remove disagreement, as Lasse already said, right? It's just about realizing the potential of social media, right? Because if we try and remember what what uh, sort of the the big dreams were at the start mm-hmm. uh for many social platforms right it was this idea of oh yeah everyone can sort of come together and we can all interact um in the great exchange of ideas and uh connecting people all around the world and i think in a way the stream still stands but it's also complicated by our observation right that um when people come together, they not only come together for good, but also to maybe, uh, yeah, <laughs> be be uh, hateful or or yeah. But here, then we assume a thin line between disagreement and harassment. Well, I I mean it's a it's an important conceptual distinction, and and, mm. and it's a distinction with uh, huge democratic impact. So it's it's one we need to make. We need to be able to make with some certainty when is something, you know, just an expression of political disagreement and when is something meant as harassment or targeted hate at an individual or social group. Um, as we experience, that's not an easy question yeah. to uh, to answer very often. But yeah, the beauty, right, of democratizing the solution would be that this could be a democratic debate, right? Um, and of course, right, like what is considered hateful is subject of change to of, of moral norms, societal norms, right? Um, and it might be different for different subgroups. And uh, and yeah, and then it's just a, a question of well, how do we how do we deal with that as a society? The 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 aspect of humor um, we discussed in the sense that. Uh, Humor imposes ambiguity and, and, and it makes it difficult to determine exactly whether or not something is meant as hateful or not. 
but it, it, it sort of spills over into the discussion that we haven't touched much upon is this, what sort of strategies should we mobilize in terms mm. of trying to, to deal with this problem? So what is the good advice to give ordinary citizens in the role of bystanders to hate on social media? Should they use humor, for example, which has been suggested in a couple of studies to be a, um, a productive way forward, but there are also studies suggesting that as we talked about, humor can be misunderstood easily and therefore it's maybe not the way to go. The same thing about, you know, providing facts as a strategy. So when we hear somebody say something horrible about particular religions that is not true, we should simply explain why it's not true and state the facts. And in that sense, hopefully, um, come to a, to a better understanding and a, and a more productive discussion. But the fact of the matter is that we also know from political uh, psychology and there's a lot of research in that area that partisanship biases are introduced in interpreting facts. So as we popularly say, sometimes your facts is, is your facts and I have my own facts, right? So it actually, that strategy might boost uh, conflicts and, and hate in a discussion. So what we are wishing to, to do a lot more research is on what sort of strategies will actually work. So the, the bit of research that are out there suggests, for example, that trying to appeal to the perpetrator of the hate to be more empathetic and try to put themselves in the position of the victim is the more effective strategy. But but this is something we really need to 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 study more, and then we have ideas and and, and studies um, that we're designing that are exactly looking at sort of what interventions, what sort of uh, advice can we give people, um, so so they know how to react, and, and we're interested in in learning more. Fantastic. I'm not going to put you on the spot then to ask what you want, kind of, what tips do you have for people? Um, we'll wait four more years and then go back to that <laughs> question. Um, but if people want to find out more about your project, you're still running for a long time. Um, where can they learn more? So there's a project website that, that obviously uh, uh, describes the, the content of the project and, and the particular sub elements to the project are, are spelled out. There are some theoretical considerations that we build on that you can read more about there. Um, uh, then there is a, a Danish language uh, sort of uh, descriptive statistic report based on the survey data that we've discussed throughout the podcast. So, um, yeah, it's based on 25,000 Danish respondents. So it's a pretty large study. So that has a lot of interesting uh, insights on, yeah, as Simon said, self-reported reflections on uh, hate on social media in Denmark. So we link everything in the show notes so people can follow up. Um, we also link Tanya in your kind of research profile so people can dig into sure. what you've been done before. But also if something comes out, that's the best way often to find new kind of findings, reports and solutions. Sure. One last sentence each. Don't be a bystander, be an upstander. Yeah, so the next time you come across something that you consider hateful, social media platform, just consider your options, what you can do try and be a, an active part of the solution to hate. Do something. Positive. Yes. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you.
This podcast is edited and produced by Kiersey Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer, and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Kag. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.